If you'd like to open your Bibles to the book of John, John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. We're going to be looking at the last portion of the third chapter of the Gospel of John. That's on page 888 in the ESVP Bibles. John 3, 22 through 36. And before we go to God's word, let's go ahead and join in prayer once again. Heavenly Father, we come before you asking for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. We want to to see what you have to say to us this morning. Father, we come expectantly. We come uh, desiring to hear from you through your word. So, Father, we ask that you would teach us, that you would show us Christ, and that you would draw us closer to you through the power of your Spirit, through these ordinary means of the proclamation of your word. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tricia was moving out. She had graduated from college. She had landed her first real job, and she was moving out of her parents' house and into her own apartment, and she needed furniture, so she was going to purchase a, a bed, and she decided to get one of these bed-in-a-box uh, beds. So she ordered it. It arrived on her doorstep. She got home from work. She opened the box, and she found this mattress that was compressed and, and inside this heavy-gauge plastic. She, she opened the plastic and immediately heard a rush of air uh, infusing into the mattress as it tried to expand. She, she laid it out on the floor and it, it kind of unfolded but then slowly stopped expanding and then finally stood still and wasn't expanding at all. And she was concerned. And so she left it there for an hour and nothing had changed. She left it there for two hours and nothing had changed. And so she called the customer service line and said, the bed I, I got, I took it out, I let it expand but it's still not fully expanded. And the customer service rep said, well, how long have you let it air out? And she said, at least two hours. And the customer service rep said, well, that's normal. That's supposed to be like that. Our mattresses take up to 24 hours before they are fully expanded. And we'd be happy to give you a full refund if that, if that doesn't happen. And sure enough, she went to bed and in the morning it looked a lot better. She went to work and came home and it was completely expanded. I wonder if we've ever had an experience like that where something doesn't look right, but then we're told that that's normal. Maybe you've, you've gone into the kitchen, you're trying something new, and you're halfway through and, and it looks really soupy, and you begin to doubt yourself, did I not put in enough flour? Did I put in too much water? And then all of a sudden, in the recipe, it says, at this point, the mixture will look way too wet right now. That's normal. Or maybe you've been out in the garage and you've been assembling something, you're putting something together, and you're completed the project, but there's this big open area that's not covered and everything else is covered in panels and you're concerned. And then all of a sudden, you look at the manual that says, do not cover this area. That's intentionally designed to be open. I think we've all been there. At first, something seems wrong. It looks off to us. But then later, we're told, no, that's the way it's supposed to be. 
When we look at John chapter 3 this morning, John the Baptist's disciples saw Jesus and his disciples and they were baptizing and they were ministering and they were gathering followers and they were concerned. And so they went to John, but he told them, no, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's what I've been saying all along. He must increase, but I must decrease. The application for us this morning is about Jesus increasing. The author of the Gospel of John, John, spends the rest of the the passage exalting Jesus. He, He shows us that Jesus is above all. And so the application question for us this morning as we move Uh, towards the end of the message would be this. Are we seeing Jesus increase in our lives? Or how are we seeing Jesus increase in our lives? Because that's the way it's supposed to be for followers of Jesus Christ. Let's read this passage beginning at verse 22 and ending in 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from above heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This passage begins with a description of Jesus and his disciples and John the Baptist and his disciples. Verse 22 says, Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and they went out into the Judean countryside, the rural areas, and it says they were baptizing. But we learn later uh, in just a few verses in the beginning of chapter 4 that Jesus didn't do the baptizing himself. John 4 to 2 says, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. 
So Jesus and his disciples were in the Judean countryside baptizing. And then we read right after that, John the Baptist was also baptizing. The exact location remains disputed, but it was also somewhere out in the Judean countryside, somewhere where there was a plentiful supply of water. So we have something going on in these first couple of verses. Verses 22 and 24 are there to show us that there were now two, two leaders. Now there were two baptizers. Now there were two ministries. Now there were two teachers. And they were both out there in the Judean countryside. Verse 25, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a, and a Jew over purification. Now we don't know the exact nature of this discussion, but from the context it seems as if it might have something to do with the fact that there were now two baptisms going on out in the Judean countryside. And I don't think it's far-fetched to think that the nature of this discussion or the nature of this debate even was on which one is best. There are now two leaders, two baptizers, two groups of disciples. There's two of them. Which one? Which one should people go to? If I'm just the average person in Jerusalem or in the region, and I have now two choices, which one would you recommend? Which one's the best? And the the man talking to John's disciples might have even given him a little poke or two. Almost like, uh, you know, that other guy, Jesus, he's getting more people following him than you are. And so this prompted... Uh, a discussion between John's disciples and John. It it compelled them to go to their leader and say something. They they felt like they were needing to to address this issue. They needed to take some action. So they decided, "Let's, let's go talk to John. And they said, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. I think we can hear that in the text, the, the exaggerated language. Everybody's going out to this new guy. And the implication there is, what are you going to do about it, John? They were concerned. If we were to paraphrase this, it would be something like, I, I think you need to know, boss, there is another guy out there, and he's, he's moving in on your territory. He's doing what you're doing. They were concerned. They were concerned that their leader's popularity was being eclipsed. They wanted to follow the number one guy. They didn't want to follow the number two guy. And it looked like Jesus was becoming the number one guy. So to John's disciples, Jesus was annoying. Jesus was viewed viewed as as a competitor. And here's John's response. Verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Now this is a general statement that's always true, but John is applying it to himself. Heaven means from God. John's saying, do you think I have any control over the things that are happening here? Do you really believe that I have anything to do with how many people come to me and how many people come to Jesus? No. No. He's saying, what you're seeing is from God. We shouldn't seek to change it. This is no cause for concern. And then he goes further. Verse 28, he tells them, I've been up front with you from the beginning. I told you I am not the Christ. 
I'm just the one that's been sent to point to the Christ. I'm the one that's been sent to prepare the way. I'm not the Christ. And when you think about it, this, this really raises some red flags on John's disciples. It, it makes us wonder, have they been listening to him at all? Because John the Baptist has been consistent from the beginning. He's always said the same thing. He's a one-note Charlie. He's saying, it's not me, it's Jesus. It's not me, it's the Christ. It's not me, it's the Messiah. And now they're saying, hey, this guy is gaining in popularity. John's answer is, yeah, that's the way it should be. Verse 29, John further answers their concerns with an illustration using bridegroom language. So he, he pulls out the, the bridegroom language and he said, look, Jesus is the groom. Jesus is the bridegroom. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom, kind of like the best man in today's culture. So we've got the groom and we've got the best man. Now, when the wedding day arrives, whose day is it? It's the groom's day. It's not the best man's day. The groom is the one getting married. The best man's job is to stand there and make the groom look good. The the best man's job is to stand there and to fade in the background and make sure everything goes well for the groom and make sure everything uh, uh, proceeds as it should for the groom, not for him. How out of place would that be if today a best man decided to use the wedding day For him to step into the spotlight and try to upstage the the groom and get all the attention. No, of course not. It's the big day for the groom, not for the best man. And John's illustration of a bridegroom and bride is not made in a vacuum. There's Old Testament language where God compares his people to the bride and he compares himself to the bridegroom. Jeremiah 2, 2 says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. Isaiah 62, 4 and 5 says, And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So John the Baptist would have been very familiar with this language, as would his Jewish hearers. So because they knew about this, and because that's part of the context for them, we need to pay attention to it too. It only strengthens the illustration to know that this is biblical language. So in the end, John's telling his his disciples, uh, what's that? Jesus is gaining followers? Great. That's the way it should be. My joy is complete. That's the way it's supposed to be. Finally, uh, in verse 30, John puts it as as plainly and as directly as as he can for these Uh, somewhat obtuse uh, disciples and he comes out and he says he must increase but I must decrease must increase it can be no other way this is the will of God this is the way it's supposed to be so that ends the the speech of John the Baptist his answer to his disciples if you see in your Bible you probably have quotation marks that end at the end of verse 30 and then at 31 now we have John the author of the book starting to exalt Christ he who comes from above is above all Jesus is the only one that has come from above he's the only sent one from God he is above everyone on earth that includes John the Baptist Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. If you look at verses 31 and 32, they are very similar 
to verses 11 through 13 of the same chapter, both talk about Jesus coming from heaven, both talk about those who do not receive his testimony, both talk about earthly things. So he's trying to show the reader that Jesus is the only one who is sent from God. Jesus is the only one who can bear witness about the things above because he has witnessed them in the heavenly realm. And then side by side, we see these two statements. Yet no one receives his testimony. And then we see whoever receives his testimony. And what John's saying there is most people don't receive his testimony, but some do. And we looked at that last week as a result of the the Holy Spirit, a a special operation of the Holy Spirit. Um, Those that are regenerate receive and understand the words of God. Verse 33, when John is saying that whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. He's saying that whoever receives the testimony or the words or the teachings of Jesus is setting his seal and affirming that God is true. So setting his seal in the ancient Near East and and at this time in the first century as well, they often used a a seal or a, a signet ring or something on a staff or something attached to their staff as a way of, of signifying something, as a way of attesting to, to their, um, their pledge to, to, to bind themselves to something legally. It was very similar to signatures today. If we sign off on a document, that's legally binding. Same thing. If they set their seal to it, that was legally binding, they were committed. Well, in what sense is he declaring that God is true? accepting that God's revelation through Jesus Christ is true because whatever Jesus says is whatever God is saying. When someone becomes Jesus' disciple, they're following God. They're not just following a man like someone would follow John the Baptist as as someone who's sent uh, by God and given a prophetic ministry. They're they're following God. They're fixing their seal. They're, They're confessing that Jesus is who he says he is that Jesus is the sent one from God, that Jesus is the one that God had, has prophesied and foretold through the prophets and through the writings of Scripture. And this is what the first half of verse 34 affirms. For he whom God has sent, meaning Jesus, utters the words of God. Why? Because Jesus is fully God. To believe upon Jesus is to believe God. To hear the words of Jesus is to hear the words of God. To receive Jesus is to receive God. When someone follows Jesus, they are, they're setting their seal to these truths. Verse 34, the second half says, For he, meaning God, gives the Spirit without measure. So this is talking about the Father giving the Spirit without measure to the Son. To give something in measure would be to give something partially or not in full. For example, uh, Ezekiel 4.16 says, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. In other words, during this time, when things get bad for Jerusalem, they're going to be drinking water very carefully. No one's going to be drinking all they want whenever they want. They're going to be drinking it in partial amounts, in small amounts. 
Therefore, to give something without measure is to give it without limit. So John's point here is to show us that Jesus is above everyone else. He's superior to everyone who came before him, everyone who comes after him. He's, he's superior to, and above all to John the Baptist, to Moses, to Abraham, to all the prophets. Because everyone who came before was given spirit by measure, in part, not in full. And even after Christ, believers are still given the Holy Spirit in measure. 1 Corinthians 13.9 says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, not in full, in part. Uh, Yes, the Holy Spirit dwells within us as much as God intends, but no, the Holy Spirit is not given to us in terms of power and giftedness as fully as it was given to Jesus' human nature. He is above all. That means us, too. Jesus is above us. Jesus, in his human nature, was given the Holy Spirit without measure or in full. He was full of the Holy Spirit in a way that no one ever had been or will be. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit in its fullness and to perfection. We're not anointed to perfection. Jesus was. Acts 10.38 says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. So Jesus in his human nature was given the Spirit without measure. Now, this is where our theology and Christology becomes extremely important. Jesus in his divine nature, remember he was fully God and fully man, in his divine nature he did not need the Holy Spirit to be given to him because he was always full of the Holy Spirit. God is three persons in one being and they are indivisible. So Jesus in his divine nature at no time was ever separated from the Trinity or from the Godhead. Verse 35, there is an eternal, unbroken love between the members of the Godhead. God the Father has given all things to the Son. Uh, a couple of verses come to mind. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. The universe. 1 Peter 3.21, Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So all things have been given to the Son. All power. Uh, the power to save, the power to judge, the power to keep those who are his, the power to judge, the power to subjugate all his enemies until they are under his feet. And that's why John can say again in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That should sound familiar by now. That verse, verse 36, is very familiar to John 3.15, to John 3.16, to John 3.18. John is just hammering away on belief in the Son results in life. That is the theme of this book series. Belief in Jesus equals life. And he ends with a statement that lets the reader know what will happen to all those who do not turn to Jesus in faith. That's how he concludes the passage. The way it's supposed to be. If we want to summarize this passage, we'd say this. There was a discussion. Uh, 
and some concern among John the Baptist's disciples about Jesus's ministry becoming greater than John the Baptist's. John the Baptist corrected his disciples by telling them that Jesus was greater than he was and that John was joyful that Jesus was gaining followers. Jesus, or John said of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. John the author emphasizes the superiority of Jesus over all others, his inseparable connection to the Father, and he concludes by stating the importance of belief in Jesus. As we move to application, we're going to focus on two areas specifically. And one, again, is going to come back to the theme of this book, and that is belief in Jesus. I want us to carefully consider that last verse. It's been repeated in the last couple of chapters. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you've been around the church for very long, or if you've been running around in Christian circles very long, you've probably heard someone say, if you have a new believer or someone who's interested in Christianity, have them start in the book of John. If you're looking for a place to start in the Bible, rather than going at the beginning, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with starting in Genesis and and plowing through, but you might want to have them start in the book of John. Why is that? Verse 36, John 3, 36. That is exactly why people recommend having new believers or seekers or people who are undecided start with the book of John because there is so much emphasis. There is a black and white line drawn in the sand over the person of Jesus Christ. You either believe in Jesus and have life or you do not believe in Jesus and the wrath of God remains on you. This is why it's recommended that people start in the Gospel of John. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, or neutral, or indifferent, or undecided, maybe, I have to do the work of of an evangelist and press you to read this verse and apply it to yourself. I want to challenge you to take this verse, verse 36, and read yourself into the verse. So it would sound like this. And instead of what's written, it would be like this. If I believe in the Son, then I have eternal life. If I do not obey the Son, I will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on me. That word whoever, that's John's way of saying he intends this verse to apply to every single person individually. You, me. Everyone that John wants us to read this verse and directly apply it to ourselves. So I want to challenge you to do that. Read yourself into this verse. Believe upon Jesus Christ, be saved, repent of your sin and turn to him. God promises he will forgive your sin, all of it. And he will impute the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That perfect life, that record of a perfect life will be imputed to you so that God can rightly declare you just in his sight. You will no longer be under the wrath of God. If you do not obey the Son and you do not turn to him in faith, then the wrath of God remains on you. 
I'm just the messenger. I'm the watchman on the wall. I have to proclaim. I, I have to proclaim the grace of God and the wrath of God, or else I'm being disobedient. We need to hear both. How many people are in hell today because their pastor did not want to talk about the wrath of God remaining on unbelievers? Carefully consider this passage. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The second area of application focus is, is for those who are in Christ. And remember that the application question from the beginning. Are we seeing Jesus increase in our life? Or how are we seeing Jesus increase in our life? Because that's the way it's supposed to be. I mean, who among us here this morning does not want to see Jesus increase in our life. This, this is a passage that applies to every single Christian. John the Baptist understood this. His life was not about himself. It was about Christ. He must increase, I must decrease. The Apostle Paul's life was not about himself. It was about Christ. Look at Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ must Increase. That's the, that's the way it's supposed to be. Why? Because Jesus is from above. Jesus is above all. Jesus had all things placed into his hand. Jesus is the one who has eternal life in his hand. Jesus is the only one who can grant forgiveness. Jesus is the only one who can grant eternal life. Jesus is the one who has called you and saved you. Jesus is the one who has lavished his grace upon you has made you one of his own. In the Old Testament, the people of God would often remind themselves what God has done for them. Uh, sometimes they would recount and reflect upon the mighty saving acts of God, and then in response, they would praise and worship God, and they would give him their all. Uh, for example, uh, Psalm 106. Psalm 106 is one of those historical psalms where it walks, uh, walks us through the, the salvific acts of God for his people. And it goes like this. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. Listen to that language. He saved them. This is something that God has done for them. And then Psalm 106, 43 through 45, many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So it's not just once. God remained faithful to his covenant relationship with them. And then finally, Psalm 106, 48. This is how the psalm ends. This is the last verse of this, of this long psalm. And it says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. 
Do you see what they're doing? They're remembering what God has done for them and continues to do for them. And then in response, they're praising him and they're worshiping him and they're giving them, giving him their all. Uh, this pattern has not changed. This, this pattern of, of thinking upon what God has done for us, how he has saved us, and then responding. Uh, we see this in Ephesians. Ephesians begins with the Apostle Paul stating that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He goes on to talk about how we were chosen. He goes on to talk about how even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God saved us. Not by works, but by grace. And then finally, in Ephesians 4, the letter turns. Ephesians 4.1 says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You see the same dynamics happening in the New Testament. This is what God has done for you. Therefore, walk before him in response to his grace and in response to what he has done for you. This is why Jesus must increase and we must decrease. It's the way it's supposed to be. He's called us, he's saved us, he's blessed us, he's set his covenantal love upon us, he's given us his church. He's shown us grace, mercy, forgiveness. What is our response? That we should increase and Jesus should decrease? May it never be. No. Jesus must increase. We must decrease. That's our response. It's not a matter of doing. It is a heart response to what he has already done for us. The Lord of the Rings is, a, is an epic fantasy book written by J.R.R. Tolkien in the uh, middle of the 20th century it's been made into some successful movies, and it's a story uh, that we're not going to go into today. I'm going to focus on one aspect. There's a character named Gollum, who we learn has made this magical golden ring the focus of his life. He calls it his precious. And it becomes clear throughout the movie that this thing that he is fixated upon and that he desires more than anything else is more important to him than his friends, than his family, than his own home, than any other possession, his own health. And even, as we learn to the end of the movie, it's more important to him than his own life. And towards the end of the movie, he's, he's within, has this thing that he desires so much within grasp, and he, he finally takes it. He's, he's struggling with another character. He takes it by violence, and he has it. And they happen to be inside this active volcano on a high rocky ledge with a river of molten lava down below. And as he grabs it, it falls off the edge and it cuts to slow-mo at this point. And here is this character cradling the thing that he loves the most. And he has this serene, peaceful look of contentment and happiness and joy on his face because he finally has the thing that he wants more than anything else as he falls to his death and is destroyed. He finally has his precious. When we think about that story, the question we need to ask ourselves is, what is precious 
to us? What is the thing that we want more than anything else? What do other people know is important to us? What do we make time for in our schedule? What do we make sure we get? What do we spend time appreciating? more than anything else. Is it Jesus? Or is it something else? Is Jesus becoming more precious to you every day or is it something else? If we had to look in the mirror and be honest with ourselves in our own heart, what is it? What would make our joy complete? Like John the Baptist said, his joy is now complete. What would make our joy complete? If we had Jesus completely and in full, or if we had something else completely and in full to perfection, what would it be? Is your life more about God, or is your life more about you? Brothers and sisters, consider what Christ has done for you. Consider how he loves you. Consider how he has been gracious towards you, despite your sin, despite your rebellion, even after you've been in Christ. Despite that, he loves you. Consider the steadfast love of God towards you and let go of anything else that has captured your heart affections more than Christ. Take concrete steps to eliminate your sin to eradicate all heart idols and turn to him in ongoing repentance and belief. He must increase and we must decrease. That's the way it's supposed to be because of what he has done for us. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sending of your Son. We thank you for everything that Christ has done for us. And in response, we want to worship you and follow you with everything we have. Father, forgive us for the times when we go chasing after other things that are precious to us. Instead, turn our heart heart affection towards our Savior. Let us think upon and meditate upon and dwell upon the richness of Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy and his love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.